Yeah, I'm big mad. So <laughs> this is so we're. <laughs> I told Eric that we would have a that we were we were having a late addition to the po- <laughs> to the podcast schedule this week. Um, I told Daryl the same thing. I was like, look, so I'm recording tonight. And he's like, only one episode? I was like, yes, it will be roughly 800 hours long. <laughs> I know. You'll never see me my, again. My fury will not be contained. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Body autonomy. Jennifer. Mm. All a girl wants. <laughs> I'm just a girl standing in front of the world asking for you to get your hands out of my uterus. <laughs> You know, I used to say, like, my uterus a lot. Like, people be like, why do you... I'm like, my uterus, right? Like, just... And I think back then, there were some men in my life who thought it was, like, charming or funny. They're afraid of it now. (laughs) I'm like, did you think I was kidding, motherfucker? Get your hands out of my fucking uterus. Yeah. Well, Victoria Dahl had this great tweet today about hysteria and how hysteria is the truth that they always they always spoke of but never really wanted to see (laughs) and i was like that feels right to me today victoria so you guys the world is aflame again it's 2019 so like again still i was on the subway today and someone said to me (laughs) i just sometimes wonder like am i drinking tea on the titanic and is it before or after we hit the iceberg (laughs) and i was like this is all fair yeah it's how it feels right there's a thing that we talk about at school where it's like like the bomb face right like something goes so wrong that you just have that like thousand yard stare Mm -hmm. and i feel like at some point uh, it's like me and every woman i know and i like can i just want to say like i i think a lot about like the women who live in states where this they're on the front lines yeah so wait I think we should, you probably know by now what we're talking about and who we are. If not, this is going to be a crash landing (laughs) into Faded Mates with Sarah and Jen. Um, I'm Sarah McLean. I write romance novels. I read romance novels. I like to talk about romance novels. Yeah, and I'm Jennifer Prokop, and I am, well, I talk about romance on Twitter, and I'm a teacher, and I basically believe that it's nobody's business what's going on in anybody's uterus yeah i got it i agree can i just co-sign that and are we done now four minutes in (laughs) that's where we stand here's here's where i think we came up with this idea is well we should say it's uh what date is it it's uh may it's it's may something 15th no, 16th, it's I think. It's the 16th, but yesterday was May 15th, and um, some real shitty laws uh, were passed, in, or a law was, was passed in Alabama um, regarding abortion. And well, and by the time you hear this, which, which should be next Wednesday, the 22nd, it might be that these laws have passed in Missouri and in Michigan. In I mean, like, these are laws that are, like, making their way through states. Um, yeah, states controlled. are coming for right. Roe. Yeah. The Republicans are coming for Roe. And uh, Jen and I are big mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think the way that we're always both interested in talking about things is, like, how does romance, which um, is, like, a genre we both profoundly love, like, help us understand, like, where women are, where women have been, and what our future will be? Um, kind of in a relationship 
like with our bodies. And I think that, um, you know, one thing like we really want to be sensitive for sure. I, I think there's a lot of like, if, you know, if men could be pregnant, there'd be, you know, like abortion kiosks at every Walgreens or whatever. And we're not looking to be that, like, I think it that's language is really trans exclusionary. Right. But at the same time, we were really interested in talking about, um, like, how do you talk about this without talking about gender? Yeah. Well, I want to acknowledge that yeah. trans men are extra terrified right now and have every right oh, to yeah. be. And I think, um, you know, I said earlier today to somebody at this is a conversation that needs to be had about every person with a uterus. And so I, I think both of us just want to set that set that out at the start. Um, but this is going to – it's it's t- a tough conversation to have without using gendered yeah. language. So language, forgive us right. for – We want to be sensitive to it, and we want our listeners to be sensitive to it too. And so it's a – like mea culpa in advance, we're going to try to do our best. But we, like, really welcome feedback, I guess, from – um, for like, it's important to us to be inclusive, but it's also like a conversation that's so tied into the way gender and women's bodies and like actual like physical parts um, are are seen in the world and perceived in the world that it's hard to imagine that we won't like we we're just gonna do our best, everybody. But we're also, I think it's urgent to talk about it, especially in romance, because as we've talked about many many weeks. This is the place where, um, like, the interior life of a woman is really, like, the most fully developed. And for, for I think, every woman, these concerns about, um, like, our reproductive organs and how they sometimes feel like they betray us <laughs> is one that I think is, um, we're really interested in talking about. Yeah, so this episode is going to be different than all of our other episodes. It's still going to have a lot of books in it. We're, um, we encourage you to get a pen. Um, show notes will be extensive. But we're going to talk about bodies and, and the, the female body and the parts of it um, and the things that happen inside us um, and the reasons why romance has always – um, seemed to be a place where that's a safe conversation um, and a safe dialogue um, for us to have. But uh, a big, the big, I think, reason why we're doing this this week is because yesterday um, I asked on Twitter for people to um, hive mind a list of romances where in which the heroine has a abortion, has an abortion, um, in without shame. Um, and uh, I think we got, what, like 15 books. Um, and I think that is the thing that we should talk about. So we're going to talk about – so content warning. We're going to obviously talk about abortion. Um, we're going to talk about miscarriage. We're going to talk about stillbirths. We're going to talk about contraception. Um, what else are we going to talk about? My rage. A lot of rage. You guys asked for it. See? Be careful what you wish for, <laughs> listeners. Um, so where do you want to begin? You want to begin with Fanny. Fanny Hill. Fanny Hill, Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure, um, which is an erotic novel. 
um, written in 1748. Don't don't be expecting this to be like Sierra Simone style. Uh, <laughs> I um, actually am really curious to read it in the light <laughs> of that like statement. I'm like a little levity. <laughs> Wikipedia calls it an erotic novel. That's what I have open in front of me because I wanted all the dates in front of me. Um, It's written by a man named John Cleland, um, and it was published, uh, serialized, so Jen would have loved it. On brand. Um, In uh, 1748. I did not know this. So 1748, I'm going to repeat that because holy crap. I did not know this, but um, John Cleland wrote it while he was in debtor's prison. And it is considered, I'm now just reading from Wikipedia, but it is considered the first original English prose pornography and the first pornography to use the form of the novel. It is one of the most banned books in history, um, but is considered by many, including Maya Rodale, to be um, a primordial romance novel. to use a Cressley Cole term. Uh, I actually love that. I love calling it a primordial romance novel. I mean, I, and I think it probably is. Um, so Fanny May, uh, Fanny May, that's, uh, that <laughs> is where you get your college loans from, which is a different rage. Is it Fanny May or <laughs> Sally May? I don't know. Anyway, doesn't matter. Maybe we'll skip all that. <laughs> so we're never good with titles. How is that not on brand for us? Um, there are there are a lot of editions. If you can find an edition of Fanny Hill with illustrations, they're super graphic. And also you can go on Wikipedia and there are several very graphic illustrations. Um, so, you know, enjoy yourselves. Enjoy yourselves. So, okay. Um, she writes letter. There, It's written. It's epistolary. Um, she is telling her own story to um, – to, to, uh, the recipient of two letters and it's basically Fanny's life account and I'm not going to get too deep into it but essentially her parents die um, and she goes to London and she gets lured into a brothel and it's the story of sort of uh, the her life in the brothel and the reason why we're bringing up Fanny Mae um, Fanny Mae God damn it. <laughs> the reason why we're bringing up Fanny Hill is because, um, like, ultimately she gets married to Charles the hero. Um, and so that's why we call it a primordial um, romance novel. It does end with Fanny in happiness. Um, there's warning a whole lot of, like, problematic representation of (laughs) prostitutes in this book it was written in the 1740s and it can be like very preachy about that so obviously you know consider the date of publication um fun fact i'm gonna retcon this that like sarah from dreaming of you that that's what she wrote that i think she is matilda right i'm sure that's probably what it is Yeah. yeah 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 um there is a lot of just to talk about like etymology for a second. There is some discussion that the reason why like you can call it like some people call a vagina a fanny is because of Fanny Hill. Oh. Um, so you know, fun facts, just fun little you know historical facts. But Fanny, importantly, um, spends a lot of time in a brothel 
um, working in a brothel um, where she loses her virginity. There's a bisexual madam, I want to say, in this book. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of sex in all different forms and all different places. Um, And there are a lot of prostitutes who have to terminate pregnancies. And they do it on the page. And Fanny sort of articulates how it's done. It's not super graphic if I, you know, am if I recall correctly. Um, sure. But it is like abortion is on the page in this book because of course it is. Contraception is on the page in this book because of course it is. And it's 1750. So let's set aside this idea that any of this is new. Because as I've said multiple times ad nauseum over the last few days, like women have been dealing with unwanted pregnancies yeah since pregnancy began sure and you know what it's really interesting because i feel like and you and i were chatting about this before we started recording that i'm pretty sure like my first introduction to abortion was like women in historical romances like somebody knew somebody who knew the right cup full of tea to drink yep right and and even though I can't name specific ones, like, I just feel like I I imprinted on that idea that there was, like, there was a woman somewhere in the village who knew how to take care of this business. Yeah. And, and that's who you went to see. I mean, and she was a midwife, right? Yeah. Because, so, one of the things that we talk about all the time, you and I, and I, I mean, I'm sure we talked about it here, but, like, the romance novel, from its very origins, has been a place where... At the beginning, a, a subset of women, right? Like written for women, white women, white yeah, cis right. women, right? Um, right? We're able to have a dialogue in us in an enclosed space away from the prying eyes of patriarchy, right? Yeah. So, and we've talked about this over time as. Um, romance has become more inclusive of marginalized people. It has become the literature of happiness and joy and hope and happily ever after. Right. And now in 2019, that's a political act. And it was frankly a political act. It's always been a political act, right, for marginalized sure. people to live happily. Women have been marginalized as a block yeah. forever. Um, and so I think what's really interesting here is that when we talk about pregnancy on the page um, and we talk about abortion on the page you and I both have the same experience which is when we were young and we were reading those historical romances um it was a midwife in the village who was in charge of birthing children and Mm -hmm. taking care of it if you didn't want one Um, and I don't just mean abortion I mean like contraception too like it was midwives who had tinctures and tonics and teas and yep I'm the same way, Jen. Like, I'm pretty sure that I didn't, that my first understanding of abortion came from romance novels. Like, that, like, there was a trick to not getting pregnant. Yeah. And this was something in pop culture for me. That moment was the movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Mm-hmm. Now, it came out in 1982, and I did not see it then. I would have been too young. But at some point, like, later on, right? I mean, I was I was 10 then, right? It's, or 9 or 10 or whatever. At some point later on, I saw it, and there's this, like, really matter-of-fact, like, scene where the brother essentially takes, you know, takes this, his sister in to the clinic, and she gets an abortion, and that's that. 
but I would say like those to me, but like really that that didn't even stick out to me the way like the romance novel and the sense that like women took care of each other in these moments was like really powerful for me. Mm-hmm. Like I I often remember it, although you have an example we're gonna talk about. I have a really interesting example, yeah. Yeah. But for me it was like women you know it was like a woman went to another woman or like whispered among the maids like somebody knew who this person was Mm -hmm. and in that sense like one of the most powerful like romances i've read with a miscarriage is called the mayor's mission by piper hughley where she actually experiences a she has a miscarriage and Virgil, who's the hero, is kind of like wanting to help Mandy, his wife. And he's like sort of like told by the like essentially the the midwife in, in their village, like this is women's business. Mm-hmm. And I think that the reason it stuck out to me is because that very much felt like I, I felt that right when mm-hmm. that midwife says that to Virgil, this is women's business that even though we I feel differently about it today in terms of like how men and reproduction things happen that ultimately that was my how I imprinted on this idea. I mean, I think that it's certainly I feel differently. It it's complicated. That's basically complicated, what that should be right. the show title of this. It's complicated. Yeah. So I just turned 40 and like my body's doing all sorts of weird shit. And like <laughs> I think about all the ways that like I, something strange happens and I think to myself like, "Oh, is that normal? Like is that is this just a thing that happens now?" And I don't like say anything to my husband. I call my right. friends or I ask my yeah. sister or like I I sort of reference it in passing to someone who is, you know, has the same right. parts as me. And I say, like, hey, has this ever happened to you? And then suddenly you have these moments where you're like, oh, wait, that has happened to me. And we yeah. never – women I – I think all the time about Emily Nagoski's um, Come As You Are. So mm-hmm. um, Emily writes – Emily's amazing. Right now she's she's sort of everywhere in romance because she she wrote these wonderful contemporary romances under the name Emily Foster. The first one is called – how Not to Fall, and the second is called How Not to Let Go. It's a duology. You have to read both, but they're both published. Um, and um, and they're, and she's, but she's also a, a sex educator um, and a, has a PhD in human sexuality. Oh, wow. First of all, um, you want to know who writes a hot, hot, hot sex scene? Somebody mm-hmm. with a PhD in human sexuality. Like, yeah. <laughs> Emily's first book, nonfiction book, um, written as Emily Nagoski, is called Come As You Are. And it's basically like a informational guide to, like, women and sex. And I bought yeah. it, and it taught me so much about, like, yeah. what's normal. Because no one yeah. sits women down and says, like, no. here's what sex is like. Here's what's normal. Here's what's not normal. Like, yeah. Frankly, everything is kind of normal, you know? Yeah. Like, so, and I think, and I read this book and it was like a revelation for me. And I was 36 or 37, like way too, and I've been reading romance novels since I was 11. My God, like <laughs> it's something revelatory about like Lady Bits is the fact that I got to it at 36 or 37. I went to Smith. We spent a lot of time talking about Lady Bits there. Like, 
So anyway, I think a lot about that. And I think a lot about the fact that like romance has always for me been a place where like women's issues can be discussed without. um, Without fear or shame. Without fear, without shame. And also without like with no shrouding. Like there's no. Yeah. Like. You know, you can go to the woman in the in the midwife and she will give you a tincture and it will take care of the business. I also have been reading romance since I was like, you know, a teen, a young teenager. And but I went to Catholic schools and then I mm. went to a Catholic. I went to Villanova mm. and I. That is the opposite of Smith, I would guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> in fact, I still have very vivid memories and I don't remember her name. So, you know, I can't name shame, but. I remember meeting girls on my floor my freshman year of college who, like, literally didn't really even understand why they got a period. Jesus Christ. And I just remember being like, what in the fuck are you doing? Like, what if we... And this was, you know, a long time ago, because I'm 45. And I, I I think a lot about, like, abstinence only education and... Right. Like one of the things I I think a lot about is even though it is not the job of romance to teach sex ed, we are fooling ourselves if we don't understand that many, many readers are are learning about sex, literally learning through this genre. Yes. And that is that's a responsibility, I think, that we like you can't. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. You're 100 percent right. And I mean, that's not, we didn't have a different, we don't, that's not different between us. Like I learned about sex and romance novels without question. And (laughs) I've told the story before that I read all, uh, Bertree Small's All the Sweet Tomorrows when I was like 14 and I was like, oh shit, I'm going to get in trouble if my parents see that I'm reading this. (laughs) You know, I mean, I had lactation porn and it was, you know, a ride. (laughs) But the, (laughs) but so yeah, you're a hundred percent right. And I do think like. I think romance in those early days didn't shy away from, like, interestingly, yes, it had purple prose, and yes, there was a lot of euphemism, and what the hell is a throbbing member, and, like, where did what go, and who's what? (laughs) Um, But at the same time, like, you know, Jane Feather's Vixen, um, which actually was published in 1996, so it's much later than I would have expected. So Jane Feather's Vixen, this is a real old school one, you guys. The hero is just awful. He's awful. (laughs) It's Guardian Ward. um, And he's a real, the hero's real bad. Um, But like if you're into like really rough alphas who are impenetrable and ultimately end up like loving their ward, it's, you know solid choice if that's your old school kink um but what's really interesting is so they have sex um he's drunk he's like real drunk and he comes home to his manor and she's there and um he didn't he doesn't know who she is she's just like beautiful young woman in his house and so and he's super drunk and they have sex and like at in the morning after he's like oh shit like what have i done and he makes her a tonic and brings it to her and says, and we'll put this image in show notes. We'll put the quote in show notes. It's an amazing thing, it's honestly. astounding because he basically says to her, here is, here." he's like, drink this. Like, he is not a good dude. And he's like, 
drink this. And she's like, why? And he's like, because it will take care of any unforeseen problems from last night. And she's like, what problems? And she, and he's like, you're an idiot. I think he calls her like a little fool. And he's like, you could be pregnant. And she's like, oh, my God, I didn't even think about that. And she takes the drink and she knocks it back without hesitation. Like, yeah, she's like, I don't want to be pregnant. Like, I'm taking this in. I'm taking herbal plan B, like Jane Feather, like Regency plan yeah. B. Um, and I, it's it's awesome. It's kind of a great scene. There are yeah. a lot of problems with this book, but right now, today, I read that scene and I sent it. I sent a screenshot to Jen, and I was like, "This is fucking great." Like, yeah, he's like, and then she says, "Will it work?" And he says, "It'll work," and that's it. And it does work. She doesn't get pregnant. Like it's it works, yeah. and. Like, what I found fascinating about that scene is it does go against type in the sense that he's the one who knows about it, right? Mm-hmm. He's taught, interestingly enough, he is taught how to make this herbal concoction by his first lover. Yeah. Well, and what's really interesting, though, is what is, though, to type is, and, and like, like, the sort of virginal young heroine, I mean, who goes to this, who... Goes to a man's bed for the first time, having no fucking idea what's going to happen. And that's another thing I really vividly remember from, like, early romance, right? Especially historicals, was, you know, it's your wedding night and, you know, they get some stumbling half-assed explanation, if that, about what's going to happen. You're going to bleed. And then they end up, you know, Marlowe and (laughs) no good dude goes unpunished with like a gallon of pig's blood. Because how much? No idea, right? (laughs) No idea. And I mean, and I think I do remember being really fascinated by like by the the stories about like like women are like sent like lambs to the slaughter, right? Like they have no idea what's going to happen. And I just I find that fascinating still, right? Like how like much I imprinted on this idea that like women were there to teach each other because it was a woman, it was her mother or her sister who told her. And if she didn't have that, then she had to rely on the goodwill of her this partner. lover, right? Her partner. I texted with Lisa Kleypas earlier today because I could only think the one of the only romance novels I could think of where where I could name contraception on the page is um one of the Hathaway brother, one of the Hathaway books, um, Amelia and Cam at this point have already been married and Amelia doesn't want to get pregnant. And so she's taking this like herbal tea, which is basically mm-hmm. like she's drinking it every day. Yeah. And it actually doesn't work in the book mm-hmm. and she gets pregnant. Um, and interestingly, I, um, I, I think that's a real thing too. Like, look, I mean, like the the actual pill now with science doesn't work 100% of the time so like these teas definitely didn't work all the time um right. but i texted i texted lisa and i i sort of said like do you am i missing something else like have you written this in other books cuz you know lisa's always we've talked about this before about lisa's like talismans and lisa's yes. really like fascinated with the history of stuff and she'll get really interested in like the history of like land management and then suddenly that's like a huge piece of a book so I asked her and she actually reminded me and I had forgotten this that in Devil in Winter um Evie asks about pregnancy and Sebastian says like there are all these ways like he sort of articulates a number of different ways that you can use contraception and he brings up the use of um 
hang on, I'm going to pull up, I'm going to pull it up. Uh, he brings up the use of, uh, quote, little charms, which were, Lisa just said to me today, um, usually gold or silver or sometimes lead, and which is, uh, <laughs> um, but they were intracervical and sometimes even intrauterine devices that. Like a pre-IUD? Yeah. Dang. Like, so the idea that these things are on the, like Lisa Kleypas setting this on the page, Jane Feather setting this on the page, is a real dialogue in the 90s about how the converse, like how women, how this is women's work. Like contraception is women's work. I mean, there is no male birth control pill and there's a reason for it, right? Like, sure. First of all, you know, it, it unfortunately it is our work to make sure we don't get pregnant. People with uteruses are responsible with make sure, making sure that we don't get pregnant, which is problematic in, in an immense way, but reality. Yeah. Well, and it, but it's also because thousands of years of the patriarchy have made it so, right? Of course. <laughs> well, and I would think too, like back in old historicals, like about French letters. Right? Like, oh, I. The French letter. How disgusting. did I? I mean, I totally had to like figure that out from context. There was no Wikipedia. There was no urban dictionary. <laughs> right. Like, and they all have like bows on them and like ribbons. And you're like, what the fuck is this? And then what was amazing is like, I. I oh, I can't believe this is the first time we're ever going to talk about harlots on this podcast because I am in love with Harlots, the show on Hulu, mm, okay. um, which is set in a bordello in um, the 1700s. It's like Bordello Wars, but the set, it's in the 1700s. It's amazing. It's super feminist. It has a full female writing staff, a full female, the, a female showrunner, um, female directors. Like the cast is something like 98 percent women the speaking cast like it's very intersectional there are queer characters there are characters of color it's it's amazing if you haven't watched harlots you should um but it's set in a bordello and it's the first time i ever saw anybody any historical anything show a french letter the way french letters are which is hard they're dried skin and they have to be soaked in water to use them i mean like you guys, yeah. show notes are really going to be rich this week because we'll all link to we'll Jen and I will work on them together and we'll link to everything. But like basically, um, a French letter is it's just a it's like imagine a dried like sausage casing. That's literally what it is. Tied it's in te- sheep's intestine. It's tied on one end with like a string as tight as possible, but it can't be tied until it's softened. So like yeah. You'd have to soak. You couldn't just like grab a condom and go. You had to soak right. it for I don't know how long. Forty five minutes, an hour. I don't know. I don't know how long it takes. Let's say an hour. <laughs> two twenty, two twenty one, whatever it takes. It's Sorry. like that scene in um the Princess Bride where they're like, "Don't go in swimming for at least an hour." <laughs> so imagine Carol Kane like as your friend, yeah. the bordello owner. But the, you know, like, and that shit doesn't work either. Like tying the end yeah. of a of a sheep's intestine with a bit of string does not protect you from pregnancy. <laughs> Which brings us back to you gotta figure out how to manage pregnancy. You and I have been reading long enough that we watched the condom evolution hap- oh, happen in romance. So much. Right? You know, it's funny because part of me is like, I don't know 
I don't know where I, I saw it. I don't know if these were conversations I overheard with people. This was pre-social media. But I remember when like people started sort of saying, like, you need to have your characters talk about safe sex. This has to be a conversation that happens before they get into bed. And I remember people being like, oh, but it's going to ruin the vibe. Like, and, and yet, like, do you remember this? I mean, yeah. this all happened, right? There's still people. Not long ago, a, a pretty big author said, you know, publicly, like, let's just all agree that my characters are all clean and are having safe sex because I don't want to write condoms anymore. Which, yeah. look, fine. It's a... <sighs> It's a bit of like a, you know, I don't I don't write contemporaries, but it's a bit of a like, I imagine it's yeah. a bit of like, oh, now we have to pause, pause now for a condom break. But like, some people do it really great, first of all. Yeah. And second of all, it's just good sense, everyone. One of the most interesting conversations I had on Twitter, though, was that um, gay men now can take prep, right? Which is essentially instead of using condoms. Yes. I've seen ad for ads for these on this on TV. One of the things that's like really interesting is like that can be part of your like your grinder profile or whatever. If you're on prep and like you and in order to keep on it, you have to be tested, I think, every like a, every month or whatever. I, I will get these details right in show notes. And so, you know, one of the things is like in gay romance that that like sort of conversation might be changing because it's essentially part of the like part of the scene already. Yeah. So it was really interesting to me how even the rules for like um, like male female romances might be different from gay romances or lesbian romances in terms of like that safe sex conversation because the way like the essentially the ways we can protect ourselves from sexually transmitted diseases and from pregnancy are so different than they were when Jane Feather was writing this historical right in 1996. Right. So I th- and I just think that's really interesting the contraception. The sort of putting on a condom is so normalized now, I notice it if it's not there. Yeah, in contemporaries for sure. I mean in historicals, oh, yeah. like I've never I've never written a condom in a book. No, of course. Um and I partially that's because of you know, it's because of sheepskin and soaking <laughs> and all that. But I mean like Elizabeth Hoyt has written condoms. Um Lisa uses has used like half a lemon, I want to say, yeah. or like a brandy soak sponge. Um, so like there are certainly contraception becomes a part of it, and then pulling out, I think, is one that happens in historical. Yeah, I've right? def- I've used pulling out a lot. Sure. Um, and I just you know assume that all my heroes are clean. Um, but the but in but it, again like contemporaries have to have to clear a different bar, I think, than historicals do. Um, and that's because of reality. That's because we live in the same world as those characters. Um, I think it's really interesting. Look, we're doing a whole podcast about Cressley Cole. Cress- nobody does um, birth control like yeah. Cressley does, um, where literally Valkyries have to eat. You know, demons have a seal. Like, there are just there's so many ways that Cressley tackles contraception in, like, an important, interesting And fertility, way. right? And yeah, fertility. absolutely. Like, it's really coded into the world, but in a way that often women are in charge of versus women being, like, victimized by. Well, and that's classic Cressley, right? On brand. Where do you want to go from here, Jen? I mean, I want us to talk about miscarriages and I want us to talk about abortion. Well, let's talk about abortion because, so I brought this okay. up early in the early in the episode, but aside from those early 
drafts of yeah. like you could just you could drink a thing and it would <laughs> magically wave away the problem. Yeah. Um, we don't have that in contemporaries anymore. I mean, we've never had that in contemporaries. And again, it's because the bar is higher, right? You have to clear right. a higher bar when it comes to contraception. Um, but we have a couple of problematic things that happen in contemporaries. And we have a couple of – and we have yeah. started to really see an evolution. I think like we have seen the normalization of condoms. And I want to say – I want to give a nod to the normalization of Plan B. Yeah. Um. Do you want to talk about Plan B? Yeah, I would love to talk about Plan B. So it's really interesting because in that list of like 15 books, it wasn't like 15 books where an abortion happened. I think there were like a handful. Yeah, five or six. Yeah. And then there was sort of another group where um, the heroines used Plan B. And one of them I read um, is by an author named, uh, by an author, Melanie Green, who I actually know from the tournament of books. Hi, Melanie. Um, and she's written a book called Role of a Lifetime. And I read it today and is really interesting because the heroine, um, Rachel, is a single, like a single mother, but their divorced father is in the picture, but he's real. He's a real jerk. He doesn't pay his child support on time. He doesn't always, you know, their daughters too pick her up or drop her off on time. And Rachel's like kind of financial stress, but also, um, you know, she's worried enough about him that she doesn't want him having her address, right? So she has like a very guarded relationship with him. Um, and he has this big Greek American family. And so there's a, like a lot of family obligations. And she ends up dating her ex's boss. This guy, Theo, is the hero. But they they get together and it's kind of like an just like an affair, like very casual. And they have sex like the first time and then like a week or two later they're together again and the condom breaks and I will tell you the scene is so matter of fact and they're just it's just like this interlude they had an hour or two to be together and he says to her okay you go pick up your daughter Hannah and you go put her to bed and I will go to the pharmacy and I'll pick up the emergency contraception and then I'll meet you back at your house and you can take it and it was and she's like great sounds like a plan and I love the detail like you know, sometimes authors just get that one detail right. And here's what it is. He looked it up on his phone before going into like the drugstore mm-hmm. because he wanted to know what it looked like. He wanted to get the right thing. Yes. That's dreamy. It was. He buys the name brand and not the generic because he really wants her to understand that he was taking this seriously. Oh. And then when he gets and then this part's actually kind of romantic. <laughs> I mean, again, like, oh, God, you're such a romance reader. No, what wait, listen say? to this. Listen to this. He says to her, I want to stay. I want to stay overnight. I'm worried. I'm, you know, what if, you know, it can be painful. You can have cramping. Your daughter's here. And she's like, OK, but I called my friend. So I don't want you to stay. And he's like, okay. But oh. he wanted to. And I'm oh. sorry. That's fucking romantic, no, everybody. It is. It's perfect. It's nobility. Yeah. It's heroic nobility, right? Yeah. I've said a thousand times that the heroes in every, every hero in a romance novel has to be a king. They don't have to be royal, yeah. but they do have to be a king. And they have to act with yeah. nobility. And like that is a perfect example. That guy is a king of Dwayne Reed. Yeah, we're kidding. That's a New but York drugstore. But a king of Walgreens. <laughs> yeah, right, of CVS. But here's my point. Like, yes, it's like a small moment in the book, and then that's it. It's not a big deal. They don't talk about no, it again. because it's really, it, it really yes. shouldn't be. It's a pill yes. that you took after you had sex. Yes. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. And the fact that it is 
coded as a romantic moment to me was really meaningful in this book because what it's saying is this is a decision like we made together yeah. right it's partnership it, it's, yes look romance novels are about finding equal partnership about standing shoulder to shoulder with somebody who you want to spend the rest of your life with right happily ever after in a romance novel involves partnership and we have seen over the years a whole lot of books about partnership around pregnancy, partnership around babies. Like the yeah. secret baby trope is about noble men who, quote, do the right thing and marry the girl, right? And and are, and are solid, sound partners in a relationship. And this is also really wonderful partnership. It's we're in this together, you are not wholly responsible for not getting pregnant. I'm responsible too. And like, that's real sexy. It was. I, and you know what? I think it's, it, it, <laughs> and that's why I think like our conception, that first time you saw a condom and it felt fumbling and awkward and weird, right? Like, no, because it's like us saying, it's, it's the, the couple saying, our safety is important. Yeah. Your health and safety is important to me. And this is the same thing, right? I would really love and I, I'm I'm gonna text I'm gonna text. I'm gonna tweet at Bowling Green and see if the guy the people there know. But I would really love it if you're a listener and you can sort of think back to your old school experiences. Mm. I'd really love to know who started this condom thing. Yeah. Because they were not on the page in those early contemporaries. No, they weren't. Never. Who? When did that happen? Yeah. Can somebody find a date? I would guess it has something to do with the AIDS epidemic. Yeah, it must have, right? I mean, this is is me like super spitballing, but I would be very interested. I'm also going to ask Kelly Faircloth at Jezebel if she's done any research on this. Um, because I feel like somebody out there knows where condoms came from. When that romance. started, yeah. Right? And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they have been there since the beginning. Maybe Mills and Boone has been using them forever. I don't. I felt like there was a sea change, though, and I remember it, it happening. Way, right? And I remember the conversations where people are like, no way, and then it just happened. And I feel like this Melanie Green book to me was the perfect example of how Plan B can be used the same way, right? Well, like, that Ruby Lang book, um, yes, uh, which is we we recommended it on an on a another podcast here, but Ruby when Lang's we did best friend sibling, right? Clean breaks. Um, the heroine is an OBGYN, um, and she not only does she counsel a character on the page about abortion, the condom breaks. Ruby yeah. reminded us uh, today that the con a condom breaks in that book. And um, the – I'm just getting it up. I'm just pulling it up. And the hero basically says, like, I'll marry you. And the heroine is like, um, no thank you, first yeah. of all. Second of all, like, I'm a professional human being and and also a fucking OB. And we're going to get some emergency contraception and it's going to be fine. Right? And, um, you know, Ruby's awesome and we love her. We stand her hard here. And I think the other side of the contraception question, though, is because Jenny Holiday's whole Bridesmaids Behaving Badly series has women dealing with these issues in one way or another, 
So one of the friends has like really severe endometriosis and her period is a plot point, right? Like, and like how debilitating her pain is. And I've talked about one of those series. She then does get pregnant and has to like really consider, like, I never thought I'd be a mother. Is this what I want? But Wendy, who's another friend, takes plan B. And then Jane, another one of them is, does they're going to be childless by choice. And you can only be childless by choice if you have contraception available to you. Mm -hmm. And so that is a series that artfully for all of them, like weaves in like the, the decisions that women are making about who, like what they want their futures to be like, and then what, or not. And there's, and I really like that there's no judgment or blaming, like, you know, Jane not wanting kids is not really a thing that, you know, like spacing on her name, the one who is like, I would be, I would desperately love kids, but I have endometriosis. Like she's not mad that her friend doesn't want them, right? Like it's just women with different choices and they all support each other. And I mm-hmm. think that se- that whole series is really committed, like Cressley, I think, to really talking about contraception in a like a really comprehensive way for different women at different points in their lives and what they want and different couples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is I think we but Jen, you and I have talked so much about the fact that these body issues, these kind of endometriosis, I my one of my very favorite romance novels of the last few years is a really beautiful erotic friends to lovers romance called unconventional by isabel love and mm-hmm. um the heroine so the, it's it's basically like friends with benefits like they know each other they have mutual friends they are each it's like they're the f- they're the marie and jess in the harry when harry met sally relationship here they're like oh got it okay um they're like the carrie fisher and uh Bruno Kirby characters. Um, so, and then they sort of meet through this couple, this middle couple, um, and they have this like beneficial relationship. She's divorced because um, she had to have a hysterectomy when she was very young while she was married to another man. And he left her because he wanted to have children. And so she sort of has this sense of, well, there is no future. There's no long-term relationship in my future because I can't have children and, like, that's part of a long-term future. Um, yeah. So she has this relationship with um, with Charlie. That's it. That's the hero's name. And they have this, like, incredibly sexy relationship that involves exhibitionism and voyeurism. You'll love that part. <laughs> um, and um, there's there are threesomes in it. And, like, it's really an, an incredibly sexy relationship. Um, and he starts to fall for her. And she's so panicked by shame. Like, she has yeah. such shame for this reality. I mean, like, this happens to women. And she doesn't – She's she kind of protects herself and protects herself from loving him because she's so afraid that he'll reject her because, you know, she feels in some way less than because she's had something happen to her. And he's an ultimate and he wants kids like he sort of is very open about the fact that he wants kids. And she's just like, I can't, uh, you know, that's never going to happen. We're not going to happen. And then when it finally sort of when it's when she reveals it, when she's like, I love you, but I can't be with you because of this, I would never ask you to give up that dream to be with me. He's like, I love you. Kids are 
separate from this. Like kids don't, you, I love, kids are an, an imaginary thing. Right, right. And they have their happily ever after. And it's really beautifully done because it's very honest. Um, yeah. You know, we have all... I mean, maybe we have not. I don't want to speak for every woman, but I feel like many, 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 many women, myself included, have felt over time sort of shame about things with our bodies that we can't control. Yeah. And this book does that beautifully and is feels very authentic and honest and also super sexy. Like, again, I'd use that like phrase earlier that like sometimes your body betrays you one so I want to return to talking about abortion maybe at the end because there is one book I think that's really interesting by Melanie Johnson but I want to talk about miscarriage first Mm. because I do feel like and you have written really one of my and I you know I I'm not here to stand for Sarah McLean all the time but (laughs) We do we don't stand for me that often. <laughs> but Day Day of the Duchess is probably one of my top 3 favorite romances ever. Well, that's very kind. And I think the but miscarriage is something that romance does put on page. Abortion something a little different. Miscarriage it, it happens a lot. And I and I actually wrote a whole piece once about it cuz I was just really curious like what is it that's happening on the page? And like not every miscarriage is sort of doing the same thing. It's like mining different like emotional like depths. So I want you to talk about Day of the Duchess, but like we can talk. And I, I mentioned the Piper Hugo I book. should add it. Day of the Duchess is has a stillbirth in it. I mean, it's a. Yeah, it's, it is. It's obviously it's it's a type of miscarriage, but. It's a lot. It's very intense. It does happen. Yeah. It happens right at the very beginning of the book. I know that it it has I want I just want to very strongly content warn this for anybody who who might have trouble with stillbirth as a plot. Um I mean, I it, that book was very personal for me. I've not had a stillbirth, but I have had pregnancy issues and um, I was working through some stuff. I wanted to write a book that was about women and the way that we relate to our bodies as failures. And yeah. that's because I was going through some stuff. Um, I have had I I've had trouble with pregnancy. I've had um, I had trouble breastfeeding. I have felt a lot of shame about what my body can and cannot do. Um, And I um, hate that um, so many women, one in four women, um, one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage and or stillbirth. And the reality is that we are trained and conditioned to believe that that is a malfunction of our body. And the reality right. is, is that when 25% of something, when 25% of times something happens, that's not a malfunction. It's just rea- It's just a thing that happens. Yeah. Um, and I hate that women are shamed by that. And I hate that it is so emotional and that it is so personal and that it is so private and that we keep it to ourselves and we struggle with so much anger and frustration. Yeah. And I, that's all in this book. I mean, that's what this book is. And yeah. 
Well, and I think the reader's experience is always really different. And Mm -hmm. one of the reasons that book like moved me, right, is like not just because of the groveling, but because of like her journey. (laughs) I love a grovel. I do love a grovel. But it is an epic grovel. I will admit that. Yeah, it is. But there's this part in particular where she is like basically she knows something is wrong right and you you've it's like i've called it a miscarriage but you're it's like really a stillbirth right yeah she's very far along yeah and she knows something is wrong and to me there's this like the most chilling kind of scene in this book and it is probably within the first 20 pages maybe even earlier is she like knocks on the door right they're they're separated and the, the, you know, whoever the answers the fucking door, the footman or whatever. And she feels like she has to say there's something wrong with the baby in order to get in the door. Like, that's what I remember, right? He's like, the like something's wrong. And, he, and, and, it, and she's like, like with the air, essentially. And I remember thinking, like, not only is it this failure of her body, but it was this, like, devastating moment where she knew that this baby was more important than she was Mm -hmm. in terms of like how she was gonna like get the help she needed Mm -hmm. and in that way i guess things have not really changed that significantly but like to me it was this uh, like heart-rending moment and romance i know like delivers those moments but one of the things i have said to people about this book is like it's the rare romance that starts with the low moment and it's like the lowest of low moments. And then we have to see them recover. And I think it's brilliant. And not just because you're sitting here. but <laughs> Well, you're very kind. I mean, I do want to say one thing about that book because it's a – and you know that I struggle with it. Um, Serafina, who is the main character of that book, she's the heroine of that book, believes she's barren. She's told after she loses the child by the doctor, this sort of male doctor who's been brought in as like a voice of patriarchy – that she'll never have children again. And so um and she she has a very specific condition. The medically her stillbirth her stillbirth birth is not coincidental. It's medical. It's a condition that actual real human females have. Um and she um she ends up believing that she is barren and at the end and I'm yeah. going to spoil the ending of this book, they they have children. Yeah. Um, and they have them in the epilogue and they have um, more than one because my I realized that I couldn't write. I wanted to write a birth. I wanted to write a live birth. And um, I couldn't write the next live birth because it would be full of fear. Oh, and, yeah, absolutely. And terror. Right. So I had to. I had to give them more than one child um, in that in that epilogue. And in, I ended up giving them lots of children. Um, but the, I have received letters and I know that there is a lot of um, there's a lot of discussion in Romance Landia about this, um, the sort of magic child that comes at the end yeah. for a barren couple. And I went back and forth and there are two versions of that epilogue, one where they have children and one where they do not. And we, um, my editor and I went over it again and again and again. And I actually just pulled the trigger on the epilogue literally the last yeah. possible day before it went to print. And I gave them children instead of not giving them children. And I did it for lots of reasons. And I can tell you they were happy either way. Um, and I probably did it 
for me more than for them. Yeah. Like it was this Day of the Dutch is an incredibly personal book for me for many, many reasons. Um, and so for me, it was really important to me that that experience happen on the page um, and that they have happily ever after with a with children. But I want to say that there is there was no reason why they couldn't have happily ever after without children. And it's funny because I know people struggle with that. I don't at I never struggle with it in a historical because I feel like some quack told her she couldn't have kids again based on what, you know? Yeah. And whereas in a contemporary, I will say the like all of a sudden I just got pregnant because I was with the right man plot. Right, the magic magic sperm. Yeah, that part, I'm like, meh, you can stop that. It's 2019, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the baby epilogue is a, it's a lie. It's something that we all sort of need to talk about because it is sort of heteronormative and there's, you know, yeah. there's a lot about it that is that needs to be unpacked. And I think it's a conversation that it's healthy for us to have as romance, as people who talk about romance. Um, but I also acknowledge that, like, I love a baby in an epilogue. So, you know, but I also have a baby and I like babies. So whatever. That's a personal problem. If you know, if your choice is it's your body, your choice, your marriage, your choice, your partnership, your choice. Um, And that's all we're just trying to get at. Yeah, there's a lot of books with miscarriages. Yeah, I mean, I I want to just shout out my favorite Julia Quinn novel, which is uh, The Secret Diaries of Miss Miranda Cheever. May not be Miss Miranda Cheever, but Secret Diaries of Miss of Miranda Cheever. There's a miscarriage in that book that is devastating. I honestly believe that is Julia Quinn's best book. It is yeah. emotional and intense, and the miscarriage is so important. Um, but again, it's told through the lens of the heroine's experience, right? And I know you have thoughts about this. Yeah, we've talked about that. Women, if it's happening to your body, it's your experience. You own it. Right. Yeah, I believe that. I totally do. And I think it also makes sense to me that romance would like, I don't know, like mine miscarriage as a possible topic because it is so personal and because so much of romance is about about hope and about and right. So like exploring the ways in which women like experience failure, but then like bounce back and figure out who they are after that. I think that for many women, and and I also think you're right, like it's not so, it's very hard to talk about. But then in a book, it gives you a way to like have that experience, right? Like you're, you're with a, you're, this heroine becomes your friend, right? Who's going through this experience. Yeah. And I think that that is something that it's a way for us to sort of collectively share our like miscarriage stories kind of with each other. Sure. You know, loss of a child is normalized in romance. And and it, it that's valuable. That's valuable for every woman, every one of that 24% or 25% of women of pregnancies. Um, uh, what's interesting is that 25% of women before they turn 25, before they turn 45 in the United States will have an abortion. Yeah. And we have not normalized abortion. No. No, we sure have not. As a genre. Yeah. Here's the bad way we've normalized it. Oh, I hate this way. I do too, and I'm real fucking over <laughs> it, which is the hero has been traumatized by a oh. bad ex who had a an abortion that he didn't want her to have. 
Yeah, he, she either didn't tell him and then she told him to stick it to him or yeah, she didn't tell him she was pregnant and then he found out. Yeah. Like, it's real bad. Fuck that <laughs> noise. Yeah. Burn it with fire. That plot really needs to die. And you know what? Those are plots actually, too, that have been around a really long time in one way or another. I want to ha- I'm going to confess something, which is 20 years ago when those plots were everywhere. Oh, yeah. I liked that because I was like, oh, it again, it sort of says like it's a code. It's code codifying like nobility of the hero. Right. Like, yeah, pro, it's codifying um, maturity, rep- readiness for commitment. Yes. Willingness to partner uh, the ability to be a decent father and like take responsibility. These are all valuable tools. Like some deep well of emotional feeling too, sure. right? Sure, sure. It was it's humanity. It's a hero's humanity coded in yeah. there. I get it. It's great shorthand, but at the same time like it's real problematic right shorthand. And I feel like, you know, it for me it was like pre and post Smith College. <laughs> pre-Smith College Sarah was like oh I love these like evil abortion storylines <laughs> and after Smith College I was like no absolutely not abortions yeah. for everyone <laughs> and I think it also really I mean here's the other thing though it doesn't just code something for the hero it codes something for the heroine right which is that she is committed to like mothering and family it's a very patriarchal way of like making sure we understand that this is a good one right that this heroine is going to be different or better and better right and all those things Mm -hmm. because she would never do this she would never do that to him that's nonsense a lot of people have very ordinary abortions in marriages that are otherwise happy a book i really recommend that is not a romance is called scarlet a which is the ethics law and politics of ordinary abortion and this woman made i saw her at the chicago humanities festival and she was this fascinating speaker where she was like We have, like, these sort of, like, myths, these, like, sort of abortion stories we tell. And then when we talk to real women who've had abortions, none of them are true. And it is a great, great book. But I remember um, we've talked about our love for, like, kind of category romances in the 80s. And one of, like, a series I really loved was this series by Barbara Boswell where these brothers all married these sisters Oh, I love it already. I know. The <laughs> Ramseys and the Bradys. And here's the thing. Oh in one God. of them, and I really remember this, in one of them, Erin is the heroine and she has like kids already. She's, of course, she's still like, she's like 24 in her, you know, she got pregnant right after high school and got married. And now the dad's out of the picture and um, she gets with this new man and she, they're not using birth control because he thinks he's barren because from his previous marriage, right? Like they weren't able to have kids. And of course, now all of a sudden Aaron's pregnant and he says like, you've been cheating on me. They run into his ex-wife like at the mall and the ex-wife is like, I'm just so glad that this happened. You know, it wasn't that I was barren. It was that basically like his sperm and my like bad body chemistry, some oh 80s God. bullshit. But I remember, I vividly remember this plot and and how angry, like rightfully so, Aaron was at this ex-wife for like not ever really being honest with the hero, right? But it's also super problematic to imagine that somehow she had medical knowledge that like he didn't, right? It's all no. so crazy. And it's this, right, the bad ex 
who mm-hmm. either withheld or aborted a child or whatever is so like I it's like an automatic like first of all I'm not reading your book anymore and I'm probably not reading you anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it certainly, you know, somebody on Twitter I I sort of ranted a little bit about this on Twitter yesterday and somebody on Twitter came forward and was like in the 90s I wrote this book and I was like in the 90s it was a different time. Like, we all have to have room to grow, right? Like, we have room. We, I, I talk all the time about the fact that, like, I'm writing for 10 years. What I wrote in 2009 is not representative necessarily of what I, what I write now in 2019. And, like, that's just life. Like, we have to have room to grow. Sure. And that's romance. And that's right. romance, right? We're moving too quickly. We're iterating on society the whole time. That's fine. What I want is for us to, as writers – as responsible citizens of the genre for us to just try and do better. Yeah. That's all we can ask for is that everybody try and do better. Can I just have a fun moment? Yes. We haven't done a lot of fun moments, but I want to give a shout out to the only vasectomy I can think of, Jennifer, um, which I had not actually thought about until you told that crazy story about the <laughs> brothers marrying the sisters and the the like how he thought he was barren and then he thought she was cheating on him. And that, that the is, 80s. And, I mean, they also owned a mall, so it's all bad sure. for them now. Of course they did. Yeah, the Ramsey Park Mall. The what? The, their last name is Ramsey. The Ramsey Park Mall. I'm just oh my telling God. You. you. I actually bought these books on Amazon because I like. Right? I was like, I gotta have them. Sure. Gotta seminal have texts. Them. So, um, uh, speaking of seminal texts, I was like. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I love you so much right now. Air high five. So, okay, Jude Devereaux, who everyone knows is like my seminal text, like the black line is the beginning of my time in romance. Um, Jude Devereaux wrote a family saga. Uh, Every book, like every book Jude Devereaux has ever written has been a Montgomery book. Um, And they have this like intense Montgomery, this Montgomery like family tree. And the Montgomerys have a lot of twins, a lot. A lot. You're making a funny face. Yeah, no, I'm just curious about it. I'm like, tell me more. Okay. They have a lot like, of where twins. Where is this all going? FYI, everybody, Jen and I have a twin interstitial coming, so I'm not going to give you too much information <laughs> about the Montgomery twins because I'm sure we'll talk about the full twin experience then, but this is a good one. So at some point, so Sweet Liar is this contemporary, like, wacky Kind of time travel-y, ghosty, like St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Chicago <laughs> period. Like sure. weird. There's a lot packed into this book. Sweet liar. And, and the hero's name is Michael. I don't remember the heroine's name because it doesn't matter. Michael <laughs> is a twin. And he's like, he has a lot. There's a lot. Michael is pretty dreamy and weird and kind of amazing. Um, but there's this legend in the Montgomery family um, of one of the like cousins uh, got he he they're so virile all the men all the <laughs> men in the Montgomery family I mean virility is like also a big piece of romances of a, of a time right and they're so virile and one of the men had. A vasectomy because his wife is like, I've had too many of your fucking babies. Like, we're not doing this anymore. You're <laughs> getting a vasectomy. And so he went off and he got a vasectomy and he came back and then they had sex and she got pregnant. And he was convinced she had cheated on him. 
And she was like, fuck you. I'm getting a paternity test for this baby, <laughs> which she did. And she was like, see, it is your baby. You're just too virile for vasectomies. <laughs> I am dead over and then here. Oh he my like, god. If I remember correctly, he buys her like a Porsche and like sure. a 10 carat diamond ring to apologize. For basically having super Montgomery sperm. For just having crazy Jude Devereaux sperm. <laughs> oh god. You guys. That's some good stuff right there. That really You know, is. but that's the perfect example of like some crazy shit in a romance novel that like definitely coded some real problematic like virility issues into my life. However, oh, for sure. I really love that a vasectomy was on the page and I love that the he- the heroine was like fuck you we're getting a paternity test. Like it was great. This isn't that actually is the heroine of that book, but whatever. It's a referenced it's a story that's referenced in there and I like that the vasectomy was just like codified like this is a thing that happens, even though in this particular case it didn't work because he has super sperm. Well, I mean, hello, Sarah. <laughs> but obviously, he's a Montgomery. So stay tuned for our twin episode and more Montgomery shenanigans. Um, What else? I want to end this episode by talking about this Melanie Johnson book. So I don't know if we're ready for it yet. Let's do it, because we're but, yeah, over an we're hour like, now. We're over an hour. Like, everyone's like, oh my god, stop being so angry. No, Never. Um, here's the thing. One of the things that was really interesting is when you asked on Twitter about abortion books, like there really were a handful, right? So there's a book by Jenny Trout, uh, one of the Tiffany Rice, uh, in Nora, I guess, one of the original Sinners books. But I want to talk about this book by Melanie Johnson called Once Upon a Bad Boy. And it doesn't actually come out until June 25th. So I don't want to spoil it entirely, but this is one of the few books like among a very small list of books we could have where like a heroine has an abortion. And, and in this case, it was something that the heroine and hero were like teenage dating, dated as teenagers. Um, They broke up. It was very sudden. He broke up with her. And then we get, it's 10, 11 years later. So now, you know, they're almost 30. And one of the things that's really fascinating about this book in terms of like that the exploration of her journey like the the abortion is she does not have any regrets at all about i mean she has moments of like what ifism right what if what if i would have made a different choice mm-hmm. she doesn't have any regrets she doesn't feel any guilt she doesn't feel like she did anything wrong but what she has done is kept it a secret for 10 years because women in our society aren't just don't talk about their abortion sure. And so that the pressure of keeping that all inside is something that has really like, right, it's it's not the what she did. That's the problem. It's the the pressure to keep it a secret. Mm -hmm. And this is something that only her grandmother knows. I don't want to spoil the book or like necessarily talk too much about like why it happened. I was I will be honest. I was really on the fence with it. I I I'm kind of ready for the heroine who's like, fuck yeah, I had abortion and we just all move on, right? It's as matter of fact as taking plan B. But Yeah, but is that really authentic? Well, I think we certain well, according to the Scarlet A book, it is. No, 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 no. I don't mean that. Yeah. I mean I mean is it authentic for us to just sort of for for many of us to step yes. forward and say like Yeah. Fuck yeah, I had an abortion. I mean right. this is the problem, right? Like we keep we've spent the entire episode talking about how we keep our bodies secret 
right? Yes. Like we protect, and it's not, it's, I mean, in part it's protection, right? Like nobody wants, I spent the last two days like, you know, fighting people on the Mm -hmm. internet. Like (laughs) not everybody has the bandwidth or the desire to do that work. Um, But the, the truth is like, as long as this is a, as long as, our bodies, as long as the uterus is politicized, yeah. Um, speaking up like that is a risk, and it's yeah. a risk that we should not expect any woman to have to take. Like, absolutely, it's a risk that if you are willing to take it, Jen and I are here for you. Like, we, I will, I, Sarah, will fight you. We'll fight for you. I will fight alongside. But we you. shouldn't insist that people have to. Yeah, and I think like there right. is a certain sense. Like, look, it takes a lot to get past. Um, codified, like in ingrained shame, yeah. right? And that is not to say that anybody should feel shame about an abortion. That is to say that, like many many people in society, expect you to, and that's and like we, patriarchy sucks. Yeah. Like, well, and you know, a really powerful piece I saw on Jezebel today was sort of like, okay, so for the past two days, everyone, you know, lots of people or women are getting out there and sharing their abortion stories, but. We're not changing hearts and minds. The people who are closed to this, the people who, who you know, think that it's you know, who are who are pro forced birth, those people don't care about our stories. No. And I ended up finding, therefore, um, Sadie is the heroine of this Melanie um, Johnson book. I therefore, like at first, I was sort of like, oh, I want you to like feel less conflicted, but. As the book went on, I ended up really feeling like it was an honest portrayal of like sort of we all have regrets, right? And regret was, you know, it was a man she loved. It was a relationship that ended suddenly. It was, you know, now someone who's back in her life. It's a secret she kept from her best friend. It's, you know, and and I and I really found that journey to like her acceptance of like not the decision she made she never regrets that decision but like the need to hide it mm. and that felt i've i will be honest with you i have never read anything like it in romance before well that is a high praise yeah I mean, no matter no matter what this book is like that's yeah, I want to read thing that we we owe it to women to tell every possible story. We owe it to all people, right. all marginalized people, to tell every possible story of happy, happiness, and yes. that is that's our work as yeah. writers, as as a genre. Well, and I think one of the things I I kept thinking about was we talk a lot about representation matters, right? Yep. Like it is really vitally important that if you that. We're not sort of saying like, okay, I read a, a, a this romance with a black character. Now I've read romance with black characters. No, you haven't. You read one. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem with there being so few stories in romance where women have abortions is then we hang our entire like hopes, dreams, and needs for that book, that story in romance on this one book. Right. Right. Or these three books. Mm -hmm. And that is why we need more of them. We need more. I mean, the fact that Jen is right. I mean, I I said 15 books at the beginning. There there are maybe 15 books on that list. Many of them are plan B. Some of them have no abortion at all, but have a doctor in them. Like if so, if we're talking about fewer, fewer than 10, less than 10 books on this list, hive minded from 
our romance Twitter people and old school romance, uh, the book club that I host on Facebook, which you can join if you'd like to. We'll put it in show notes. Yeah, we'll put it in show notes. Um, like that's an incredible hive mind. And if we can only come up with this number, like there aren't that many more. That's there right. really just aren't. I'm sure of. I mean, every if again we go back to one quarter of all American women under the age of forty five have had an abortion. And there are that is millions of stories. And we're not and what is happening? I mean, it just takes us back to that original question, which is why in this genre that has made carved out such important domestic space. And I say domestic as a like female centered, right? Like women centered space. As a genre, as a matter of course, centering the female gaze and female identity and female politics, right? Or women's politics, I should say. How have we never, how have we not come to a place where there are at least, you know, yeah, 250 we can point to? Exactly. I mean, and that's the part where when you see how small the sample size is, right? And, you know, this Melanie Johnson book, I'm about, we're, you're going to hear about it next week. It's going to be available a month later and we will signal boost it, you know, to high heaven yeah, we once will. it actually comes out. Because I do think that I found Sadie's journey, right, as like an individual character and her moments of like sadness and her her sense that she couldn't. I mean, I found it all very moving. And I thought, you know what? We deserve to see a woman who's like, yeah, I kind of have some regrets and sometimes I wish what if and I still know I did the right thing yep. and it was still my decision to make. Well, because bodies are nuanced. Feelings are complicated. Like, this is not an easy discussion, which is clear in the in the world. And it's why Jen and I rage so hard when anybody comes at this with a black and white answer. Like, this right. is a hard conversation to have and all I think I'm saying is, like, I stand with women being able to make their own choices about their own bodies. And that's really all. That's it, right? Well, and I think that that's why, like, you know, we started out talking about trans men and trans women and, and like, sort of bodies and who we are. But, like, if you believe in bodily autonomy for women then I think you have to believe in bodily autonomy for everybody. And I think you have to look at people and say, like, I want you to be who you are in the world. Yeah. And I want the world to accept you and that journey for what it is. And if romance cannot be there for that in every way, then romance is not doing what it needs to do to support the people who need it the most. Right. If it's the genre of hope and happiness it has to be the genre of hope and happiness for all of us yeah no exceptions <laughs> no exceptions no except nazis except nazis yeah but i mean and that's the part where i find this conversation and these books you know and i know we talked about like probably 50 different books today and we didn't even talk about all the books that we could have but I mean, I think we were really interested in exploring, like, what is it that romance is doing really well, right? Romance is talking about miscarriage. It's talking about grieving and loss. You know, romance is talking about condoms and safe sex. 
Romance is talking about preventing pregnancy, but it's not really talking at all about abortion. And this is about to be a right that many of us are not going to have access to anymore. Mm-hmm. And that fear is something I would like to see romance like normalizing for ourselves as women and for readers. And I get, I'm not a writer, right? I don't have to like make a living off my book selling and putting my kids through college out. You know, I know those risks are out there, but I hope that we all get behind Melanie Johnson's book and prove that there is a market for like nuanced stories about women who make hard decisions for themselves Mm -hmm. or easy decisions for themselves But they make those decisions for themselves. Right. People deserve to have body autonomy. Period. Um, That said, what I do want to add is that we are, I think, and this is me sort of looking into my romance crystal ball. I think this, we could be, this could have started a sea change among writers thinking about the fact that we don't. We limit, we create space to talk about bodies, our bodies, and how they work. Um, And like you said, we create space to talk about sorrow and shame around the way our bodies work. But we don't, we have limit, we have stopped, we've come to a stopping point when we get to this piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Um, And I think a lot, a lot of romance novelists, I mean, just in the last two days, I've heard from so many writers who acknowledge that they've never tackled it but they want to yeah and so i would like to think that a year from now we're going to start seeing in books a little more i don't think we're ever going to see it in every book like i don't think we're that is not and that's not what i'm asking for but i think we're going to see more and more and more of these stories on the page and that's all we're asking for we're just asking for us all to just think a little more carefully about representing that choice that a lot of us have made and and i mean a lot i just i gave an interview about this today and i just feel like i said at some point you know everyone everyone knows a woman who has who has done this everyone is interactive with a person who has done this you may not know and nobody is asking anyone to risk like i said earlier if it's not safe for you to share that story, either emotionally or like physically or if for whatever reason, like mm-hmm. I like no one's going to push anybody into the limelight. Right. But romance then is a way like miscarriage where we can share our right. stories in like, right, there's truth in fiction. I say that to my students all the time. Right. Romance is a private space. It yes. is. It's a yeah. private space for people who read romance. And it's and it's so far removed from, like, the prying eyes of the rest of the world. If we can't have this conversation here in our private space, yeah. where can we have this conversation safely? Right. Um, and look, the reality is ugh, that readers, there are going to be readers who don't like it. Yeah. And well. so it's going to take risk and it's, it's going to take um, bravery and... I really am looking forward to the to the books that come from it. Yeah. Well, and you know what? I think your crystal ball is right on because when I think about the books that I talked about tonight, like specifically, right? Jenny Holiday's books, um, that whole series, uh, the Melanie Green book, the Melanie Johnson book, like these are books that are all 2018 or later. Yeah. Ruby Lang. Right. Ruby Lang. I mean, so we are already like 
We are talking about old books, but then a lot of the books that we are like talking about right now are right now. Mm-hmm. So we these are really like the women who are putting these things on the page. They're the forerunners. And if we support these books and buy these books and show that there's a market for these stories, then we were, we, we will get more of them. And mm-hmm. I know that there are books that we missed. We tried to cast the widest possible net. Well, we've only had 48 hours. So <laughs> we're going to, I mean, I'm committed to reading all those books on the list. Um, yeah. And and so, you know, follow follow us. Uh, follow me on Twitter. Follow the Fate of Mates Twitter account and mine. And I'll, you know, tweet about the ones that are, you know, great. And hopefully we'll get more. If you have a book, listeners, that... Uh, con- that if you have read a book where there's an abortion on the page, please, please wreck us. Um, you know, gr- good abortion wreck rep. We want that. Um, tell us about books that are that have meant something to you. As you know, as representing kind of body autonomy and and bo- the body politic. Um, we're interested in that. I think um, Jen and I especially are interested in how like how fertility and um, contraception and all of that lives on the page. If you know, if you can point to an early use of a condom in a contemporary, we want to hear all about Definitely that. Definitely want to hear all about that. I'm going to do some research and, you know, follow again, follow Fated Meets on Twitter, follow us on Instagram. We'll put everything there. I mean, and I think that's it. Like we are like, it's a call to action, right? Like, because we know that when you change people's, worldview and their empathy and the way they think about like the choices we get to make and have that we change the world like the urgency of this isn't just like because we want you to have better books to read it's because when we change the way we think about what our possibilities are we change our futures well that's a good place to stop i think you're listening to Fate of Mates, everybody. Um, follow us on Twitter, Fate of Mates. Follow us on Instagram, Fate of Mates Pod. Uh, go over to our website, fateofmates.net, and check out the show notes on your apps or over on fateofmates.net. You can leave comments there. Um, you can talk to us anytime. Leave us reviews. Um, <laughs> you know, all that good stuff. Next week, we are back with Dark Sky, another, another broken demon man he's a demon right yeah a winged winged demon and i think it's going to be very relevant and interesting conversation yeah to this one that we well crustley always is but i think this book in particular is really landing at a time where i think it's going to be really interesting so go out and do something you want to do with your body today have a good night 